We're in 1 John chapter 4 this morning. This morning, uh, after the service, I'm going to head to the uh, airport and uh, appreciate your prayers for me. This is part of my work with Desire and God. I'm heading to uh, Italy for this week and then Amsterdam the following week. But this next Sunday, I will be preaching at a small church in Bologna, Italy, and I would appreciate prayer for that as I seek to encourage them with the good news of Jesus. And then I would also like to greet them for you as a congregation who is like-minded in confessing Jesus the Christ and confessing our sins together because of, of Christ. So that's next week, and I would appreciate your prayers for that. So the month of June, we've been in 1 John. The first week, we looked at our assurance as Christians. The second week, our assurance against sin. Last week, we did our assurance at Christ's coming, and this is a related text because it's the coming of Christ in view, but it works very closely with facing death as well. So this morning is our assurance at the coming judgment. We're going to look at 1 John 4, 7 through 21 this morning. Earlier this week on my Twitter feed, I stumbled across a 1984 photo of astronaut Bruce McCandless II, who happened to be the first man ever to leave the spacecraft without being tethered to it. So he had that um, manned maneuver outfit, and he was out there in the, in the photo. I don't know if you've seen it. You can Google it, see it sometime this afternoon. So there's this photo, and at the bottom of the photo, you can see just a part of the blue globe, Earth, but surrounding him was just pure blackness. So he's out a good distance from the spacecraft, and he's out there all by himself, untethered from the spacecraft, and all you see is blackness. No stars, just utter, dense blackness surrounding him. That for me would be terrifying. To be utterly out in space, going how fast, I don't know, really fast, and to be utterly untethered from any safety whatsoever. I've, I've experienced a number of times in my life coming up to the very veil of death and that experience gives you an idea of what it might be like to approach death itself untethered from Christ himself. Back in... Uh, Christmas, December 1989, so I was a single youth pastor living in Michigan, and we had just um, had a, a Christmas gathering with our, our, our church family, and I was heading home, so it's that night, and I'm, I'm coming up to uh, some railroad tracks, and I noticed something very unusual taking place. It felt really off. I'm coming up, and I... The, the train, I'm the first one arriving, the train is slowly coming, finally coming to a stop. 
the, the caboose had just barely cleared the tracks, the train stops, and I happened to glance down. The moon was, it was a full moon, and I, I glanced down the tracks, and I saw this car upside down, probably 25, 30 yards away. So I pulled over, I got out, and as I'm walking toward that car, I, I, I see scattered about four bodies, tangled, mangled in ways that they're not supposed to be. And you had four passengers, age 14 to 25, who tried to cross the tracks before the train arrived. And I remember walking through that devastation and feeling absolutely sobered by how thin the veil of death actually is. Back in 2002, my wife and I experienced the death of our three-year-old son. And I vividly remember the final beat of his heart. And at that moment, you could feel how thin the veil of death actually is. And then two and a half years ago, my parents died on January 4th, my, my dad, January 6th, my mom, 48 hours apart. And it's experiences like that where you realize how thin the veil between you and death actually is. And it's in moments like that where we can get a sense of what it would be like to face death untethered from Christ. In Paul's sermon to the Athenians in Acts 17, these are his final words of the sermon. He says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world. So there, there is a day coming, it's fixed, God's appointed it. There is no way to avoid it. Everyone who has ever lived faces this particular day. Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. For those who have not trusted Christ, That is a day most to be feared. But for those who have trusted Christ, that is not a day to be feared. Whether the day of judgment comes at his return or whether we die first, after which there comes judgment, for Christians, that's not a day to be feared. Unfortunately, I know there are individuals, Christians, members of this church who are sitting there, and when you contemplate the fact that one day you will face death, you do not feel confidence. I've been there. I've had times when I'm contemplating death, or I find myself up against the reality of death in a way that's uncomfortable. 
And I've experienced that sense of, at this moment, I do not feel confident. So that is an experience for, for Christians. So our text this morning is, is not being addressed to those who do not trust Christ and should, and therefore should fear the coming day of judgment. It's actually written for the, the second group, Christians. And what Paul does here is say Christians should not fear the day of judgment. And our, our two key verses in, in our whole text, and I'm going to read these two and then we'll go back and, and read the entire text. 1 John four seventeen. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in the world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. And so the answer to this fear in our text is in 1 John 4, 7-21 is actually love. That's the answer. You have, we have 15 verses here. Do you, do you know how many times the word love occurs in these 15 verses? Let me tell you. 29 times. 15 verses. And 29 times Paul uses the word love. I just, I just finished writing a book and my editor would not stand for that amount of repetition. So John, John's editor was the Holy Spirit, so the Holy Spirit said, hey, let's, let's put love all over these verses so that Christians can be absolutely confident at the, at the day of judgment. So that's why our outline this morning puts the focus on love. So three headers, love desperately needed, love objectively shown, and love subjectively experienced. Now, before we read the text, let me remind you what's going on with the deconversionist or the secessionist. You you had a, a group of members of the church who were debating Jewish, a Jewish church largely debating whether or not Christ was the resurrected Messiah, and you had a a faction who decided, no, he's not the resurrected Messiah. So they rejected the apostolic gospel, they abandoned the visible church, and and now that they, they didn't leave quietly, now they're actually trying to deceive those who remained within the church. And that had caused a lot of doubt and uncertainty within this group of, of churches. And so Paul here, or John here in, in 1 John 4, 7 through 21 is encouraging them so that they do have certainty as they consider the day of judgment. Look at verse 7. And I'm going to make some comments here on the first uh, five verses as we, as we read. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. 
And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So, so don't forget here that those who don't love their brothers in the context of 1 John is, is the deconversionists. That's the ones who don't love their brothers. Verse 8, anyone who does not love does not know God. How can we be certain that they don't know God? Answer, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So the deconversionists had rejected Christ as the resurrected Messiah, and because of that, they were unloving to those within the church by trying to deceive them. Verse 12, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another... God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us, because He has given us of His Spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love Because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Let's look at verse 17. Love desperately needed. Love desperately needed. Verse 17, by this is love perfected so that we might have confidence for the day of judgment. This is not the first time that John has used the word confident or confidence. He used it four times in the letter. The first time he uses it is chapter 2, verse 28, which is what we considered last week. And what John does in 2.28 is he explains to us what the absence of confidence looks like. So look at chapter 2, verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence. Now he shifts and he gives the opposite of the confidence that we should have. And not shrink from him in shame at his coming. 
Like two weeks ago, I mentioned that I was uh, sat on a, a, uh, a jury for a man who, re- who refused to have any representation. Represented himself, did not go well. And, and that week, I was, in the, uh, I was uh, summoned for jury duty all week. The next day, I showed up, and I was sent, to, for, uh, sent into another jur- jury pool for a guy who had been charged with manslaughter. So I remember sitting in that courtroom, waiting to see if I'd be selected for the jury. The, the bailiff stands and says, all rise, names the judge. The judge walks in, black robe. Very, very, if you've ever been in that kind of context, it's very sobering when the judge walks into the room and, and then for him to say what the man is being charged with, I remember sitting there afraid. I had no confidence, and I was innocent. I was innocent, and I'm sitting there, I'm like, yeah, this is terrifying. I, I can't imagine if I were that man who was being charged with manslaughter. Got in a fight in a bar and didn't end well. Can't imagine being that guy on that day for that trial. Now, you, you take that and you say, okay, that's where you, you can see yourself shrinking back in shame, feeling shame because of the soberness of the moment, the judge seated. Imagine that happening at the coming of Christ when you are untethered from Christ. Multiply that by a centillion, and you're not coming close for the amount of shame and shrinking back there would be when faced with that judge untethered from the judge. But John says that we should have confidence. So where does that shame, where does that shame come from? If you remember back in Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve had sinned, they're hiding from God. And God asks the question, where are you? He's not asking a question for, where's your location? That's, that's a covenantal word of judgment. Where are you, Adam, now that you have rebelled against my commandment? That's the question. This is, that was a question of judgment, and Adam and Eve were hiding because they were afraid. They knew that they had, that they had sinned. So what, what's the only thing that delivers us from that judgment? And then what's the only thing then that can give us confidence when contemplating the coming day of judgment and John's answer is love. His answer is love. It's 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 the love that delivers us from the word of judgment itself. It's the love that delivers us from the judgment day that will arrive and it's also the love that once it delivers us, 
also gives us confidence when we face it. That's how desperately we, we need this particular love. Secondly, love objectively shown. Back up to verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And when he says God here, the Father's in view. So love is from the Father. And whoever loves has been born of God, of the Father, and knows God, the Father. Anyone who does not love does not know God, the Father. Remember, they were, the secessionists, the deconversionists were making claims that they knew God without Jesus. Verse 8, anyone who does not love does not know God the Father because God the Father is love. So when he says God is love, it's God the Father is love. And in view here is not the eternal love of the Father, Son, and the Spirit before anything was created. What John is concerned with here is the love that the Father has shown within redemptive history within human history itself. That's what he's concerned with here. He wants us to look at human history and see that the Father has actually objectively demonstrated, shown his love for us. Look at verse 9. In This, the love of God the Father, was made manifest. It was revealed. It was shown among us. That God the Father sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is the love. So the definite article, once again, is in there. In this is the love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So John is talking about objective, divine intervention within human history that happened whether we feel like it happened or not. That happened for us without us feeling that it happened for us. So what John is doing here is he's, he's teaching us that assurance is absolutely dependent upon events that happened outside of our experience. We, th- we hear assurance and we think immediately what's happened, what happens inside. That's the wrong order of things. John's not going after assurance by first saying assurance is what you experience on the inside. That's not how John starts. That's not how John's thinking here. In order for assurance on the inside to be experienced, something on the outside must happen, and it has happened, independent of our experience. And what is that? The Father sent the Son into the world to be the propitiation for our sin. So don't, don't get the order wrong. Don't, don't first examine your faith, trying to feel something in your faith. I've been there. 
When I think of my faith, when I look at my faith, I'm, I'm wanting to feel something with that faith. Don't start there. Don't start there. Start by looking outside yourself because the only true source of assurance is what God has done outside of you to give you the assurance that you are His children. So, what, what John is doing, this is beautiful. He's, he, he doesn't define faith or belief in this epistle. Doesn't do it. I would think, yeah, you, you probably, if you're, if, you're, if you're addressing the assurance of these Christians, might want to talk about what faith is. He doesn't do that at all. He uses faith, believe, doesn't define it. What John is doing is not defining faith, but he's giving faith something to see. The key to faith is not what it's doing. The key to faith is what it is seeing. The object of faith is what defines faith itself. So what John is doing is saying, this is a faith issue. Their faith feels uncertain. So what I'm going to do is give their faith something to behold. And in the beholding of this objective event, faith becomes certain. Assurance results. So John is telling us that when it comes to Christian assurance, what's the right order of things? What God has done outside of your experience. You weren't even alive. Nowhere in anyone's imagination other than the fact that God had predestined you for adoption as sons before the creation of the world. That happened outside of your experience. And then within human history... All kinds of events that shook the very foundation of the earth happened outside of your experience. Now, where's, where's the spirit in all of this? We know he talks about the Father and the Son doing things outside of us. What about the spirit? Look at verses 13 and 14. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. So, we've been given the Spirit, and then he says, verse 14, and we have seen, and now he's using the apostolic we, and we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Do you see the connection here? So when he says, we have seen, same language as the opening verses of the epistle, when he says, we looked upon We looked upon the resurrected Christ. That's the same word here. We have seen and testify. Talks about that in the opening of the epistle as well. They they looked upon, they saw the resurrected Christ, and they testified concerning the resurrected Christ. So what's the connection then between the Spirit and them seeing the resurrected Christ and not only seeing Him, but being convinced of it so much that they then testified 
to the resurrected Christ? What's, what's the relationship between the Spirit and what's happening there? In John's Gospel, chapter 15, this is Jesus speaking to the apostles. And Jesus says, when the Helper comes, the Spirit comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness, he will, same word, testify about me. And you also will testify because you have been with me from the beginning. See the relationship? The Spirit testifies to them that Jesus is who he says he is. And then Jesus says that the Spirit will move you to testify to who Jesus is to others. That's what's happening here. That work of the Spirit that we just described is outside of your experience. He's talking about what God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit did within human history to bring about certainty concerning who Jesus is and who you are in relationship to Jesus. That's what, that's what John is, is doing here. We know that the Spirit has been objectively given because we have the apostolic testimony. So if you wonder, has the Spirit been given to us objectively outside of our experience? And John will say, yes, the fact that you have the apostolic testimony of who Jesus is as the resurrected Christ is evidence objectively that the Spirit has been at work. And that's what we have as a church. We're founded upon the apostolic testimony. It's certain. God, has done, God the Father has done something. God the Son and God the Spirit, all three persons of the one Godhead, have objectively worked, revealed the truth about who the Father is, the Son is, and who the Spirit is. So if you want assurance, if you long for assurance, you, you need something with absolute certainty. And John says, you have all the certainty you need. And to look at the apostolic testimony of who Jesus is as the resurrected Messiah is to have all the certainty you need. We are a church that confesses that Jesus is the Messiah and because of who He is, we also confess our sins. So, you may be sitting there going, yes, I, I get that, amen to that, but, <laughs> but I still want to feel it. Right? I get it. I agree to that. Amen. But I still want to feel assurance. Is, is God just leaving us with the objective reality shown within human history and that's what we get? 
No. Third heading, love subjectively experienced. Look at verse 17 again first. But this is the love. So the definite article there, again, this is the love. So when he says the love in verse 17, you know what he's pointing back to? Verse 10, where he talks about the love. And the love in verse 10 is the Father sent the Son to be the pro what? Pitiation for our sins. So that's the love that John still has in mind what Christ did as our propitiation, which takes us back to chapter 2, verse 2, where when we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is the propitiation for our sins. So by this is the love of the Father perfected with us, back in 1 John four seventeen. By this is the love of the Father perfected with us. When he uses perfection language here, he's saying this is how the the Father's love reaches its intended goal in us or among us. So the Father's love demonstrated outside of our experience has an intended goal within our experience that it's taking us to, it's leading us to. So the Father's love is moving us towards an intended goal. What does he say? So that, all right, so here it is. So that we may have what? Confidence for the day of judgment. Confidence is experiential, right? If you don't have confidence, you're going to feel it. If you have confidence, you feel it. So the, the Father's love has an intended goal to reach a completion at which point you have confidence at the day of judgment. Because, he goes on, as he is, referring to Christ here, as he is, so also are we in the world. Let me give you a, a paraphrase of what that last, that last part means. Because just as Jesus is in the Father's love, remember chapter 2, verses 1 and 2? He's with the Father. He's the, Jesus Christ the righteous, our propitiation. So that's, that's the framework. That's the way John is thinking here. So he says... Because just as Jesus is in the Father's love, so also are we in the Father's love in this world. We're not left without it experientially. It's with us. It has an intended goal, and that is to give us confidence. Just as Jesus himself has confidence right now in the Father's love at his right hand. Verse 18. There is no Fear in this love. There's no fear in this love, the Father's love, but perfect love, when the Father's love reaches its intended goal, mark, these, mark these, this phrase, cast out fear. I'm going to come back to that. For fear has to do with punishment. 
And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Love has not reached its intended goal. So what's the, what's the big point here? The father, father, your father, intends that you experience confidence in the day of judgment. His love, experienced within you, because of the apostolic testimony and the work of the Spirit, casts out fear. This is the phrase, casts out, really quite stunning. So John, this is a Jewish letter. John uses Jewish language. So chapter 1, verse 7, where he says, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses you from all sin. That's a very Jewish way of referring to the death of Christ, how it avails for us. You get to chapter 3, verse 3. He's talked about the coming of Christ and he who thus hopes purifies himself. That purification is very Jewish language. So John is really tapped into the Old Testament and the Jewish way of putting things because he's writing to a largely Jewish audience that has now arrived on the other side of a Jewish debate. So he says this, this love of the Father, when it reaches its intended goal among you, casts out fear. Where does that language come from? Remember Adam and Eve again. God says, where are you? Where are you, Adam, now that you have rebelled against my command? That covenantal word of judgment. And you get to the end of Genesis 3, verses 23 and 24. Listen to this. The Greek translation translates a particular word that we find in 1 John 4. The Lord God sent, out, sent him out from the garden to work the ground from which he was taken God drove out the man. God cast out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Adam sinned. Adam rebelled against the command of God and his judgment is to be cast out from the only place on earth where communion with God was enjoyed. And what John is talking about in chapter 4, verses 17 and 18 is the exact opposite experience. The exact opposite experience. 
when God drove out, cast out the man from the place of communion with God, now, in Christ Jesus, he cast out fear. So we can face the coming day of judgment with confidence. See how it turned around because of what God has done within human history. So the question is then, how can God do that? How can God do that? 1 John 4.10, in this is love, not that we have loved God, the Father, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Remember, this is a Jewish letter. John's using very Jewish language. And I think... uh, Two and a half years ago, three and a half years ago, three and a half years ago, I, I preached and used this to illustrate what propitiation was, and it's, it's the best illustration within Scripture itself that I have ever found. So Exodus 25, this is when God is giving Moses instructions for constructing the tabernacle, and in particular in the verses here, the Ark of the Covenant itself and the mercy seat. God cares about measurements. He really cares about measurements. Exodus 25, verse 10, They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length. A cubit and a half its breadth. And a cubit and a half its height. So he gives the measurements for length, width, height. Verse 16, and you shall put into the ark that has those measurements the testimony that I shall give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Then here's the measurements of the mercy seat. Two cubits and a half shall be its length and a cubit and a half its breadth. The exact measurements of the ark into which the law which speaks to us of our condemnation for having broken the law. It has the exact measurements of the ark. The law is put in the ark. The mercy seat is then placed over the ark, and it covers the ark perfectly. And then verse 21, God says to Moses, And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, And in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you. From above the mercy seat. See what's happening there? The the law that condemns us because we were once rebels and we still break the law, the commandments of God, because Jesus is the mercy seat, which is the Old Testament word for propitiation, not one 
smallest fraction of the law can escape from underneath the mercy seat because Jesus exhausted all of the wrath of God against us for the law that we have broken, for which we were cast out. And now because Jesus fully exhausted the wrath of God, God only meets us from above the mercy seat. So how can you have that kind of confidence when faced with the judge of the universe? Because whatever sin you've ever committed, thought, word, or deed, can't escape the box. Can't escape the box. Because Jesus took it all. That sin was placed upon his shoulders. In Isaiah 50, he says, Jesus says, I, I did not turn backward from his mission, but I gave my back. Jesus took all of our rebellion. And none of it escaped. That's true now. And at the day of judgment, whether that's when Christ returns or if you die, nothing that you have ever done escaped. Nothing. So here's what John is doing. God has done objective work within human history. And by rehearsing it in this letter, that's where your assurance comes from. This is what we confess as the people of God. This is why we gather to give our faith something to see that is absolutely certain because God himself has dealt with it himself. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the assurance that you have given to us that has been testified to us by the apostles and recorded in your word. And so we, as your people confess the truth of who Christ is as the resurrected Messiah, and we confess our sins knowing that our sins have already been fully dealt with. And we thank you that you are the God that you are, and ask that your word and spirit would cause this sense of certainty to grow within us as a church family, and we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.